You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. I'll tell you what's a sin. Have You're a- listening to Tony Telecast from The Ensemblist, the only podcast that shows you Broadway from the inside out. I'm Aaron Albano. And I'm Mo Brady. Welcome, listeners, to our miniseries about the Tonys, looking into the drama behind the drama of a theater season in Broadway history. In each podcast episode, we watch a telecast of a previous Tony Awards, not only the performances, but the opening and speeches to see how it reflects the season as a whole. So let's dive in and talk about the 1984 Tony Awards. The 38th Annual Tony Awards was hosted by Julie Andrews and Robert Preston on June 3rd, 1984. Presented at the Gershwin Theater, current home of the long-running Wicked, the show featured three medleys dedicated to composers, John Kander and Fred Ebb, Jerry Herman, and Stephen Sondheim. Heading into the ceremony, two musicals were virtually tied for the most nominations, Sunday in the Park with George with ten nominations and La Cage aux Faux with nine, Baby and the Tap Dance Kid followed behind with seven nominations each. This season, there were no musicals nominated for Best Revival. But aside from the telecast itself, what was happening in 1984, Aaron? The 1983-84 Broadway season spanned a time with many notable events. Marking the final year of President Ronald Reagan's first term, 1984 found itself a leap year, an election year, and a summer Olympics year, which the U.S. hosted in Los Angeles, California. In an internationally petty move, our longtime Cold War rivals, the Soviet Union, boycotted those games. Fun fact. This season also saw the creation of the federal holiday to commemorate the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., with Reagan having signed its originating bill the previous November. This year would also see the founding of Canada's famed entertainment company, Cirque du Soleil. In New York, one of the largest events to take place, and it's mentioned in the telecast, is that a chorus line makes history as the longest-running musical on Broadway. After eight years and 3,389 performances, a chorus line broke the record on September 29, 1983. It would continue to hold that record until 1997 when it was overtaken by Cats. Today, it holds the number seven spot on the list of longest-running Broadway musicals, surpassed only by Phantom, The Chicago Revival, The Lion King, the original production of Cats, Wicked, and the original production of Les Miserables. Let's pour one out for the non-nominated musicals. And there were a lot of them. A lot of them. This season. There were nine non-nominated musicals. And what I think is interesting is how they clearly fit into two categories. Hmm. Mm -hmm. If you remember last week, 1999, so many of the musicals that weren't nominated for Best Musical were still nominated for a lot of awards. Yes. This season, we really see a clear distinction between... The shows that were up for best musical and other things, and the shows that were up for nothing. It was definitely a big shutout between like the favorites of the season. The five non-nominated new musicals were A Men Corner at the Nederlander Theater, 28 performances. Marilyn, 17 performances at the Minskoff Theater. Oh, Marilyn. You know, now that we've done Bombshell, you really want to see it. Scott Bakula played Joe DiMaggio in this. Oh. Uh... Yeah. Who I remember from Romance Romance was killing it up there when we saw that performance. Yes. Yes. A 29-member ensemble, including Mary Testa. So maybe we have to talk to Ms. Testa about that. 
All right. So uh, the third was Doonesbury. 104 performances at the Biltmore, the longest running non-nominated musical. No ensemble, but featured Gary Beach, Mark Lynn Baker, and Kate Burton in the cast. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Star-studded. Would this have been before Perfect Strangers? Yes, it would have, right? It feels like just before. You wouldn't do Doonesbury if you were on Perfect Strangers. Yeah, that's fair. This is a reference for absolutely no one under the age of three. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which is our brand, really. Yes, exactly. Awaken Sing! Exclamation point, played 61 performances at Circle in the Square. Again, no ensemble. Featured Dick Latessa and Francis McDormand in the cast. And then The Human Comedy played only 13 performances at the Royale, the shortest run of the season. What was the Royale? The Royale was the Jacobs. Got it. Cool. And uh, featured Olga Merides from the original company of In the Heights, Abuela, as the role of Mexican woman. Cool. So reading that reading that credit made me excited and disappointed all in one fell swoop. <laughs> Correct. That, that feels accurate for that. What I thought was really interesting, actually, was not the new musicals, but the revivals. We didn't have any revivals nominated for Best Revival, mm -hmm. which this season is just called Best Revival. But we did have four, and all four of them had a famous person repeating a role they had played either on Broadway or in a movie. So Zorba... Revival was led by Anthony Quinn in his movie role. Mame Revival with Angela Lansbury in the lead. Oliver, led by Ron Moody, who played Fagin both in the movie and in this revival. And The Wiz with Stephanie Mills. And Ron Moody is the only one that really got a Tony nod for his... Well, Anthony Quinn's co-star, Leela Kudrova, wins the Tony for Best Featured Actors. Oh, yes, because she was in the movie as well. Yes, exactly. So this interesting phenomenon of we're going to do revivals, but we're only going to do them with famous people in the leads. What's secretly great about that, of course, is that it also gives ensemble people roles. So in the Zorba revival, we had Rob Marshall in the ensemble. Oh, um, nice. In the Wiz revival, we had Jasmine Guy in the ensemble. Oh, work. And this isn't an ensemble role, but in the Oliver revival, we had Patti Lapone as Nancy, which is never a bad thing. Which I would pay to hear that as long as he needs Oh my me. gosh. Can you imagine Just... Patti Lapone singing as long as you... I can imagine it. And it sounds fantastic in my head. Agreed. Maybe we need to call Jonathan Hoover to just do a rendition. But it's actually interesting because in today's format of the Tonys, these would get a lot more TV time and advertising time but they got none there none zero. of those revivals had performances because angela lansbury is 100 like a favorite of the tonys and a favorite of broadway and even in her numbers they weren't like hey angela come and do the number from mame we can also advertise the show well while the, the mame revival was a very limited run it ran only 41 performances at the gershwin oh fair yeah the oliver revival was 17 performances the whiz revival was 13 so part of me i wish i knew more but it makes me wonder if these were like the tail end of a tour oh interesting that they just sort of were touring the country and a broadway theater was the last stop on their tour or they were like limited engagements where it was just like hey we got a space come and see a show because zorba according to these numbers 
Zorba feels really like the only sizable run of these four revivals. Yeah, that ran past the end of the season. It felt like a production in and of its own right versus these other runs that seemed so short they could only be part of something bigger. Something bigger. Yeah, that's fair. So, Mo, this was one of your choices for watching the Tonys. Yes, Aaron, how can I help you? Uh, Why did you choose it? This was, in fact, my first choice. I've really enjoyed these older ceremonies because they feel so different from what I know, right? The structure is different. It's not only like, oh, look at that performance, right? Something you would see on YouTube, but just like the way the evening is laid out is so different from what I think of as the Tony Awards. As we've delved into them, I've been really interested in how there's a bigger focus on the art and not necessarily like hoity-toity musicals, but like they're very much talking about the art form of musical theater versus what I consider the Tony Awards to be now, which is a series of awards with live commercials in between. I would agree with that. Again, that feeling of like, like looking into an insider party rather than a commercial. Yeah. I've also been drawn to these ceremonies in which different kinds of shows are pitted against each other mm. in the fight for best musical. Sure. So in, in this year, 1984, we have a Sondheim show a Jerry Herman show, a Black Helm show, and a little pop rock musical show with a Kander and Ebb show, which isn't nominated, but we see a lot of it. So it does feel like five very different kinds of musicals that we get to see. And I'm interested in like how the awards shake down, like what was considered valuable in 1984, a Sondheim musical or a Jerry Herman musical. So that's why I wanted to pick this guy. No, that's awesome. Or girl. I'm not going to gender the 1984 Tony Mm -hmm. I agree. And what's really cool is that as we delve back into the older telecasts, what's kind of great about watching the older telecasts is that there is this sort of sense of they're still figuring it out. There's more variety and there's more sort of freedom in the way they do each telecast from year to year because they haven't figured out the tried and true system yet. We have these themes now, right? Like we're getting to see these themes, whether it be the composer theme Mm -hmm. or... The critic theme. The imperial medley. Yeah. Especially watching this one, we just leaned in and centered around the composers. Will you talk about these hosts? They're two very, very little known actors in the theater realm. (laughs) So we had Robert Preston, who's... I mean, without getting too deep, we had his big memorial in 1987, which was very striking. It's only three years later. Right. I was sort of confused when we watched the literal 76 trombones come out Mm -hmm. in the 1987. And this made it make more sense to me. It was like, oh, three years ago, he was hosting the thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It would be like if Neil Patrick Harris passed away, right? Like we would celebrate him in the awards in some way. Yeah, because also it would be, it would probably be very jarring to the community because just three years ago we saw him on our screens. Yeah. We had Robert Preston and we had Dame Julie Andrews. Julie Andrews, man, just put those British queens up there. Lady Whistledown herself, Julie Andrews. I wouldn't say they were like particularly doing a lot because there were a lot of people doing a lot yes what was cool is i feel like they drove the night but also got to perform a lot yeah we're gonna get to the performances because a lot of people performed 
A lot. A lot. <laughs> but yeah, but I was like, Robert Preston and Julie Andrews were in the show and in the show the whole time, which was kind of great. I loved it, actually. I mean, I don't mind Robert Preston and Julie Andrews. Mm-mm. I thought it was a good, I thought they were good hosts. The theme of the night. Yes. They were very clear. Speaking of a theme, the 1984 Tony Awards has one. The composers. It is about the composers. It's the songs, right? They really let us know that everything else about a musical is shit. And the songs <laughs> are the way to go. They 100% did. Especially Julie. Damn, man. Julie said, the audiences remember the songs. It isn't fair. That was her first mention of it isn't fair. She says, the American musical theater is truly a collaborative art form, but what is it we remember? The songs. I guess it isn't fair, but there it is. What's funny about that quote to me is like, the teleprompter could not have said it isn't fair twice. Like she must have like looped around when she was reading off of the teleprompter, but I was like, that is a statement to say twice, Ms. Andrews. Like, I love it when, like, Dame Julie Andrews, the Maria Von Chap of our generation, gets a little shady. <laughs> it's wonderful. Then Robert Preston chimes in and says, So this evening would like to pay attention to the work of four artists who can be heard on Broadway right this minute. We'll see how they got started and remind ourselves of the body of work that they've created. Body of work! Again, we're getting, like, a history lesson. We are here to teach. And you know what? If it means I get more Leslie Uggams on my screen, we're good. I want Leslie Uggams in every Tony Awards. This is my new- I want Leslie Uggams in the 2021 Tony Awards. Let's be real. I was going to campaign for a Best Ensemble Tony Award, but now I actually feel like we should just campaign for Leslie Uggams to appear in every Tony Awards. Leslie Uggams lifetime performance Tony. Like, yes, let's go. So we're going to talk about all of those medleys that are mentioned in the second part of our 1984 discussion, just because- They're so sizable. Yes, and because the nominated performances were actually integrated into the medleys, or at least most of them were. But it, it, it's easier to just sort of talk about all the performances as a whole. Yes. On Friday, so join us on Friday. Aha. Speaking of shade, I did love the considerable shade of how Lacage was like the obvious industry favorite. Oh my god! It gets six wins compared with two for both Sunday in the Park with George and the Tap Dance Kid and none for Baby. Mm-hmm. But this is like... I feel like it's just like a bunch of white cis gay men like congratulating themselves on awards. That is so my 2021 view because obviously the cause was a breakout musical about like queer acceptance. Yes. I mean, and it was and it was dropped right in the middle of the AIDS epidemic. So I get it. But but you're right. There is an aspect where the celebration of the content aside, there was this almost this like going out of its way to like kick Sondheim while he was down. Like, I don't know what it was. I, I know what it Jerry was. Herman's. Yes, it was Jerry Herman's speech. Jerry Herman in his acceptance speech for best score for Lacage says, this award forever shatters a myth about the musical theater. There has been a rumor going around for a couple of years that the simple hummable show tune is no longer welcome on Broadway. Well, it's alive and well at the palace. I, ca- I can only imagine People in the audience and at home just jaw dropped. It feels personal. 
right? Yeah. This is the composer of Hello, Dolly. This is the composer of Mame, right? This is, we need a little Christmas and put on your Sunday clothes. Yeah. And he's saying, I am not obsolete. Well, I mean, and, and, and we just came from, in I think 1981, the dismal fall of Merrily We Roll Along. Hmm. So like, bro's already down, man. Like we've all watched a big documentary about how it was literally the best worst thing that ever happened. Icarus has fallen from the sun. And 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 so just three years after that, where he's just trying to get up off the ground again, and arguably one of the best, if not the best work Sondheim has ever done, Jerry Herman holding your spinning statue is going to like come for Stephen Sondheim like this. It, from 2021, it feels super icky. It feels really like petty. Like, I'm just like, dude, you won. <laughs> It's John Napier level ickiness. <laughs> I mean, nothing can be that level, but like, it's pretty bad. The whole thing feels to me like there's like this boys club that's giving each other awards and that if you aren't part of that club, then you were left out, right? Which again, like we've seen before, like we could argue that it happened at Hamilton. We can argue it happened at, like during Kinky Boots time. Oh, like it, the producers was a hundred percent. Yeah. People congratulating each other with Tony Awards. And I think there's an aspect where most of the acceptances were very gracious and just talked about how wonderful it was being in the room where Lacage was made and how wonderful a place it was to work, all of these things where Jerry Herman literally went out of his way to like come for his competitor, which I was like, dude, you just got a full medley praising your accomplishment. So back off, dude. How did we do the plays this year, Aaron? Did we do the plays? I don't we, did know. we did this not. This is the first Tony Award ceremony we've watched where they did not even try. They didn't do anything. I think Robert Guillaume comes out and is like, based on this presentation, you would think that Broadway is made up of all musicals, but no, 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 there are also plays. And then we didn't do anything. <laughs> nope. I was just like, you didn't make your case very well. Sir Robert. What I did think was super interesting and was about a play was when Dustin Hoffman comes out to present the award for best play. Yes. He gets a standing ovation. Uh-huh. Watching him, I was like, why is Dustin Hoffman getting a standing ovation right now? I was as well. As I want to do, did a little research. Do it. He was currently playing Willie Loman in a revival of Death of the Salesman at the Broadhurst. But that show was not nominated for any Tony Awards. That's wild. Then course did a little bit more research in the new york times on may 10th uh there's an article by frank rich specifically about what happened <laughs> and why there are no tony awards for this i mean it's a frank rich ep so it's like an opinion piece yeah but still but, so what does he think happened this is the first paragraph so what happened? That's the question theatergoers are asking this week as they contemplate a roster of Tony Award nominations that does not include Dustin Hoffman and John Malkovich of Death of a Salesman. Here with four prominent theories, along with arguments to knock each theory down. <laughs> so oh, then the, man. Like, there's actually a New York Times article that like goes through the T. So he goes through arguments, but it's interesting that like 
not knowing a thing about it, just the way the audience responds to this person coming on was like... He stops the show. like, what's happening? This yeah. is very strange energy. Listeners, if you want to read up on it, it is from May 10th, 1984. Have at it. You know who does get an award? <gasps> yes. I do, but who? Cheetah Rivera. No, I love seeing these people get their first awards, right? Like Yes! Oh my gosh, that's the coolest part. Cheetah... Rivera, 22 years after her first Tony Award nomination, wins for The Rink. Talk about a hometown hero. Yeah. Like, when they're announcing the nominees for Best Actress in a Musical, she gets cheers. When they announce her name, there's a standing ovation as she walks to the stage. Liza Minnelli is very excited. She jumps out of her seat, literally. It is a joy mm-hmm. to watch her. Yeah. And from, from where I sit, I'm like, oh, yeah, Cheetah Rivera was always a Tony Award winner. Of course she's a Tony Award winner. She's fucking Cheetah Rivera. But then in the moment before, she was not a Tony Award winner she was such a gift to our art form and such a gift to our community and like this was the moment where it all coalesced and she gives she gives a good speech too she's very gracious she's got a good joke like it is it is a good tony award speech Thanks for joining us for this first half of our discussion of the 1984 Tony telecast. Uh, Join us on Friday where we will discuss the performances by the nominated musicals and give our unsanctioned Yelp review. (laughs) The Ensemblist was produced today by me, Mo Brady. And by me, Aaron Albano. Special thanks to Wasif Sami for the background research on this week's Tony season. Please rate and review The Ensemblist wherever you listen to podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or bpn.fm, the home of Broadway Podcast Network. Our Patreon members have on-demand access to our archive, including full conversations with our guests and early access to episodes. You can support us for between $5 and $20 a month at patreon.com slash The Ensemblist. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.